1: It's been an incredible week in football and we've got a gagging pod to match. Premier League commentator Pien Muhlenstein is our special guest, joining former Matilda Amy Duggan and me, your host, Teo Pelizzari. Two manager sackings and two tight title races, Premier League and WSL. A look ahead to Matildas against England, plus the Women's World Cup And a bit of insight into how Peen became one of the voices of the Premier League. So much to talk about, so let's get into it. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Welcome to the Gaggin' Pod. We are mixing it up in the best possible way on the Gaggin' Pod this week. We welcome back our former Matilda, Amy Duggan. And we have a very special guest who Optus Sport viewers will know incredibly well. Commentator... And uh, one of the voices of the Premier League, Pien Muehlenstein. Pen, it's great to have you on the Gaggin pod and it's great to chat to you, especially given that your commentary has been illuminating the Premier League for us for the last two seasons.
2: Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to
1: it. Amy, pretty exciting uh, because if we were looking for a guest right in the sweet spot of both women's football and the Premier League, I don't think we could have found a better one.
3: Absolutely amazing. Of course, Pien, you're the daughter of Renee who works with our Socceroos, but we've uh, heard your voice and you've made giant leaps through the world of football and especially in television over the last couple of years. And uh, for all the young girls out there that have dreams of uh, being in commentary or being sideline and some of the biggest football in the world, Peen is your lady to start following. She is doing an absolutely amazing job, a trailblazer, a youngster cutting through, and uh, we are super proud to, to know that we have this strong connection, but you're someone that um, lots of young women in the industry can look up to, Payne. so congratulations.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. That's very kind of you, and yeah, I've just been very grateful to have been offered the opportunities to be able to sort of do what I love. So yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying every minute of it so far.
1: <laughs> as much as it's nice to start on a positive, the big news of the week is two Premier League managers losing their jobs, and we have to start with Graham Potter and Chelsea, because it has been a burning question on the Gegen Pod ever since the results started going sour. Pen we'll start with you. Uh, was it the right decision by Chelsea, and were you taken by surprise that Todd Bowley and the Chelsea ownership finally dropped the hammer on Graham Potter and said, enough's enough, time to go?
2: I feel like you just can't be surprised anymore in football, can you, with, with all the sackings that are going on and managers just don't get the time anymore, which is such a shame. It's such a shame that sort of football has come to it where it, it can turn so quickly. Um, you know, it was such a short amount of time that he was given Graham Potter to be in charge of Chelsea, to um, you know, try and rejuvenate their season. It obviously was a tough tough ask for him. I think ultimately the reason why he was um sacked was because of the inconsistency in, in terms of results and you know there is such a big focus on success i think the difference between what he had at brighton compared to what he had at chelsea was um the lack of expectation i think a team like chelsea the fans have such expectations for success whereas a team like brighton uh, albeit the amazing job that he did do at Brighton, you know, they're not a team known for being in the top four. They're not a team known for being in the Champions League. So um, I think that's why, you know, he did so well at Brighton, because he was able to put his own mark on that team and he was able to bring the players in. He had the time, he had the success, and teams were struggling to play against Graham Potter's Brighton. Whereas I think for Chelsea, ultimately, um, it just became... Too much, and it's a shame because I think he's a great manager, and I don't think this is the last we'll see of Graham Potter in the Premier League. I mean, he's already being linked <laughs> to the Leicester job. That's how quick things like this go. But um, yeah, ultimately, I think it's inconsistencies that that lost him his job.
1: Amy, who even wants this Chelsea job? They they signed so many players, and they've signed so many to eight-year contracts. Was Potter given an impossible job, and is it actually an impossible job for whoever succeeds him?
3: I think when we originally knew that Graham Potter was coming across into this job, there were a lot of questions over how he was going to man-manage such a big squad full of so many personalities and put his style of play, whatever that may be, into this squad and he's clearly struggled with that and as Pen said i agree the lack of consistency the win rate is not great and and yes the expectation is super high at the moment with all the great clubs they want owners want results straight up and it's probably i think unrealistic to not give them a little bit more time to do this Ultimately, though, you know, what are they into? You know, they got rid of Tuchel, they've got rid of him. I wouldn't expect anyone to want this job before the end of the season unless they could guarantee some longevity in it. It's going to be difficult. There's so many players on really long contracts and you're walking in to who knows what culture and who knows what kind of leadership style is being pushed down from the top. And ultimately, I think that's the that's the type of thing that a coach is going to want to do. Come in, get control, have the opportunity to build their own squad, bring in the players that they want and have time to work with that squad. And I don't think you're going to get that at Chelsea.
1: If you were Todd Bowley, who would you hire? Because I know that uh, Julian Nagelsmann (laughs) is kind of trying to distance himself from the job. That could just be a negotiating tactic to drive up his price. Other names, Luis Enrique, Mauricio Pochettino, even Zinedine Zidane, uh, Jose Mourinho. Uh, You can get uh, 35 to 1 on him. I I don't think that's the best bet. Roberto De Zerbi, there's a lot of buzz. I mean, (laughs) people are saying that maybe Todd Bowley should have just bought Brighton. Uh, rather than trying to <laughs> transplant Brighton to Chelsea. If you had uh, Todd Bowley's checkbook, which he is not afraid to use, who would you be putting in as the next Chelsea manager?
2: Yeah, that is a really tricky one, isn't it? Because there are some great names out there. Um I've always been a big fan of Zidane. I think he's, you know, he, he is a great manager. Obviously, was a great player as well. I think um, I would love to see him managing in the Premier League. I think that would be really interesting and exciting. Whether he'd want to do it, I have absolutely no idea. Um, it's the same, I think, with Nagelsmann. He's a great manager too. Um, I think the thing with with Chelsea and what's, what is tricky, and, and I agree with Amy, is that managers need... Time to build their squads. I think every manager deserves at least three transfer windows. So, if you don't get given that amount of time, how are you meant to build a squad or build a team that's that's your team? So, I think that's why it was so odd as well when Thomas Tuchel was was sacked because he brought in players that were Tuchel players, but then Todd Bowley had had come in and there was players coming in. It was who, whose players are these? Who what team is is getting looked after here? Is it is it Graham Potter's team now, or is this the old Thomas Tuchel team? It was all a little bit, you know, up in the air. So, I think it's important that whoever does come into Chelsea, and I do think it will be a big name, um, will have to put stamp their authority on it and say, you know, I need this time. These are the players I want to bring in. Because clearly, they've got enough money because they spent so much, so much money already. The amount of, the amount of players that they brought in since Todd Bowley took over Chelsea is incredible. Um, and the amount of money that they spent. So I think clearly, you know, that there is the opportunity for these managers to buy the players. It's just, the, you know, they need the time. But I think a big name is definitely on the horizon for Chelsea.
1: Now, Amy, when we go back to our pre-season predictions, Michael Bridges normally loves to say Newcastle for top four or uh, whoever... Well, he's right at picking, the moment. That's so yeah, sad. Mark Mark Schwartz <laughs> saying that Haaland was going to score fewer goals than Darwin Nunez, but... You were very much all over Brendan Rodgers and Leicester City as the blinking red light for relegation. Leicester City have finally acted on Brendan Rodgers. They are amazingly the 13th managerial change of the season. It's getting close to the all-time record, which uh, was in the mid-90s. So we're talking uh, once in two decades sort of phenomenon this. What was your reaction when you heard that Leicester City had finally made the move on Brendan Rodgers?
3: That they've waited too long and I can't believe he's flown under the radar for so long. I think we've been predicting this since pre-Christmas, almost the World Cup break. Um, Their signings weren't great. Their form's clearly terrible, although it is, you know, tight at the bottom, whether that's even a thing, I don't know. But what does that leave now? Only two coaches remaining in the bottom half of the table that are hanging on by a thread. And um, I just, it's unbelievable. I'm with P and I've never seen so much turnover in a season. It's crazy for for being a coach. I just think of the money going in and outdoors as well. And it's almost a revolving door of coaches. So, you know, I'm not surprised by it at all. I'm certainly not going to gloat because I actually feel really sorry for them. I um, I wish they had done more in, in the first, in the off season to build a better squad. And I think, you know, if you're a supporter and you think of the highs only a few years ago, it, it's a terrible low. It's a terrible low for them.
1: Uh, as we're recording this, Nottingham Forest have just lost to Leeds, meaning that uh, Steve Cooper uh, and Forest that are sitting 17th, only out of relegation on goal difference, same situation as David Moyes and West Ham. They're all on 27 points with Bournemouth. It means that uh, every club from 11th down has changed manager, except for those two. Is it inevitable that David Moyes and also Steve Cooper, uh, even though we got a new contract uh, earlier in the season, may also go and and this Premier League meat grinder is going to claim two more before the end of the season
2: no I genuinely think that those two will last until the end of the season because I think they would have gone by now had they wanted to get rid of them I think West Ham and David Moyes were obviously under incredible pressure however they, they won that game at the weekend on Sunday which just shot them up to 14th, which just shows how close this relegation battle is you know it's not it's not as desperate as it perhaps looks for West Ham because they also had the two games in hand over some of the teams in that relegation zone. So now I think it's up to them to build that momentum. Um, I just, I think really sacking a manager at this point of the season with such a little amount of games to go, what really is the point? Because, you know, yes, maybe you get that new manager bounce, that kind of thing, but... Really, you're probably just going to have an assistant manager that's going to take over to the end of the season. It might work, it might not work, and you know you see it all the time where sometimes they get this bounce and sometimes they don't. But I think with West Ham they would have done it by now. Uh, Nottingham Forest they gave Steve Cooper a new contract, and I, I actually really rated them for doing that. I respect. Nottingham Forest for giving them him a new contract and sticking by him because, you know, that's what you need from, from club owners is, is to have that backing. And that proves to the players as well that he's not going anywhere. You have to stick by him and you need to find some kind of fight within you to try and stay in the Premier League.
3: I agree with you, Payne. I think Steve Cooper will stay. I think the club's been really clear about their long-term plan with him. I'm not sure they're overly it'd be nice to stay in the Premier League but I'm not sure they're overly concerned and I think if we look at history and statistics we know that generally two of the three teams that come up go straight back down so there's a there's a kind of a different expectation on those teams that came back up this season and I think Steve Cooper's safe and you're probably right if Moisey was going to go it would have been by now as well so um I agree with you I think he'll stick around to the end of the season but as far as everyone else goes um you know, as you said, it's so tight at the bottom that a single win actually pushes you out of the relegation zone. So it really is about consistency, getting two wins in a row and trying to stay above. And I'm thinking that's what the um, the other changes are trying to do. They're looking for that managerial bounce. They're looking for just enough to stay in there.
1: Pien, this is a question we've asked our regulars on the Geggin pod and none of them have had a, a decisive answer. Just give me one team from Palace in 12th down that you think is nailed on to survive. Who's the one team you would pin your colors to to say they are too good to go down because right now there is three points between 12th and the relegation zone
2: I would actually say that West Ham are too good to go down I think if you look at the players that they've got in that squad especially Declan rice um too good too good to be relegated West Ham I think they'll be I think they'll stay up I think they'll be fine
1: All right, let's uh, quickly check in on the title and top four race because it was as you were at the top of the league, but Manchester City, the way they mowed down Liverpool from a goal down, Amy, is this going to be similar to the 2018-19 season where City won their final 13 games in a row, Amy? Do you actually see them dropping points anywhere from here?
3: Well, I think the intention would not to be um, and I think their coach, you know, Pep will have that in his head. He'll use that. I'm sure he'll use that stat with his team and say, you've done this before. You can do it again. His expectation on this squad is, you know, super professional and and making sure that they get those wins under their belt. So I'm sure that's going to be the driver and I'm sure that's the intention. Will it happen? Probably. Probably.
1: Pen, you're living and experiencing this every week of the season. It is the feeling among your colleagues, you know, the press pack, the journo's, the other broadcasters, that Manchester City are inevitable, or is the balance flipping and the majority are starting to say it's Arsenal's season?
2: Oh, do you know what? I think people are still a little bit too, too afraid to say that this is Arsenal's season just because of the way that Manchester City are playing, especially in that last, you know, that last game. I think that was probably one of the best um, Manchester City games of the season that they played um, against Liverpool. I think that was a a brilliant, brilliant game for them. Jack Grealish did so well as well. Um, So I think that makes it more tricky. What will be interesting will be to see if Arsenal can handle this pressure because because they are now in this catch-me-if-you-can stage of the season, which, you know, some... well, Well, the Arsenal fans will be enjoying every minute of the fact that they're top of the league, but I don't know whether the players or the manager will be particularly comfortable in that position which sounds really strange to say but I think you'd be more comfortable being Manchester City doing the chasing knowing that you've got that that exhilaration that excitement to keep going you know you've got every game counts because you're getting closer and closer to the league leaders Arsenal whereas Arsenal are now thinking we need to make sure we win every game to stay away from Manchester City because if we fall down if we fail if there's anything that slightly goes wrong manchester city aren't going to hesitate to try and overtake us so i think it will be an interesting sort of end to the season to see how Arsenal can cope with this manchester city who are really breathing down their necks
1: and on the top four race amy uh... It's uh, a little bit of a shame that Michael Bridges couldn't join us this week. I think that. I don't think as, so. As soon as the full-time whistle <laughs> went on Newcastle's win against Manchester United, he actually popped up in my WhatsApp uh, in the middle of the night to say, oh, actually, I, I think I might be able to jump on this week. Uh, Amy, what's going on with Manchester yeah. United? Uh, it seems as though ever since the League Cup win, the, the form has gone <laughs> absolutely down the gurgler. Brighton winning against Bournemouth means that you've got to look over your shoulder. They're only four points back. But Spurs, as much as the chaos has happened with Antonio Conte there, um, they continue to get the results. And it's a real dogfight. I mean, I know you're you're a one-eyed fan. But which way do you see Manchester United climbing in these last 11 games? back into the top four. Is it going to be at the expense of Newcastle or Tottenham?
3: I don't really care who it's at the expense of, Taya. I just want to see them back in the top four. That's all it's about as a fan, isn't it? It doesn't really matter where the wins come from or how gritty and dirty they are as long as we get the points. I'm very glad that Bridge is not here and able to rile me one up because uh, losing to Newcastle and having to sit here and get my ear bashed off about how amazing Newcastle are and how he predicted they'd be in the top four all along um, would be just enough to to make me want to switch it off this morning, let me tell you. But, you know, Man you obviously with that 2-0 loss drops from third to fifth, it does push us outside the top four. Am I worried? No, because I just keep looking at this season going – at the beginning of the season, I was so worried we were going to be doing a Liverpool or a Chelsea. So um, at the moment, I'm happy just to be in the race. European football is still on the table. I hope it's uh, I hope it's better than that. I hope it's Champions League football. Are we going to win the title? Probably not. But are we going to be right up there? We'll give it our best shake. Yes, it's the results haven't been you know what we've expected over the past couple of weeks. But I have faith. I have faith now in this Ten Hag era. I have faith.
1: Pien. Uh... Our uh, pod listeners, if they're listening to this on Thursday, Man United will have already played Brentford. But then they turn around, prime time with the end of daylight savings, 9:30 p.m. on Saturday evening against Everton. It's a huge week. I mean, the Brentford game will bring back memories of the start of the Ten Hag era. Everton under Sean Dyche, a very different proposition to what they had been for the first half of the campaign. Who do you see? Uh, falling or rising into this top four? At the moment, it's Newcastle and Tottenham in those Champions League places, but do you see a path in for Manchester United, for Brighton, or even for Liverpool from a bit further back?
2: I definitely think that Manchester United will go, will stay in the top four. I think Tottenham, because of everything that's happened with Antonio Conte leaving and the fact that they've now, you know, they, they are also struggling for that consistency, I think Tottenham will drop out. Um, Newcastle have been... A brilliant watch this season, um, just how great that they've done. So I think it'll be, you know, I think it might just be Manchester United that go back into that top four. I think with Liverpool, um, I think they're too far behind now. If you look at the table, I mean, it's incredible because Aston Villa are seven, which I'm just looking at it now. And, you you know, from, from what, where they were at the start of the season to this incredible sort of, a resurgence under Unai Emery has been brilliant as well but I don't think Aston Villa will, will climb into the top four so I think it will just be Manchester United but it will be an important couple of games coming up for them especially as you mentioned that Brentford game there will be a, a feeling of, of of trying to get revenge after what happened to them at the start of the season that was a really terrible result for them especially the start of sort of the Eriton Hawks reign at Manchester United so um, you know it's good news as well for them that Ericsson is back in training I don't know when he'll be available but um, I think that sort of that midfield cog for Manchester United with Casemiro coming back as well would, would, is really what's going to, I think, take them over the line at the end of the season.
1: Well, stay with us here on the Geggin' Pod because we've got so much more to talk about. The WSL and the Matildas, also the World Cup, and a little bit more on our special guest this week, Pen Mullenstein. Stay with us.
0: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
1: Welcome back to the Geggin' Pod. We've got former Matilda Amy Duggan with us this week and also commentator, broadcaster, Pien Muhlenstein. Well, let's talk about the WSL because it was a bit of a groundbreaking Sunday night on Optus Sport with pre-game halftime and post-game coverage of the Arsenal clash against Manchester City. Alicia Ferguson was on the ground at Meadow Park. Amy Duggan, you were in the studio. Before we get into the game itself... How great was it? And uh, when you started working with Optus Sport, would you have dreamed that something like this would take place, that it would be a full, you know, you think of a Premier League-style studio production, start to finish for WSL Games?
3: Can you believe how far we've come? Can you believe how far we've come? Uh, Optus has always been an amazing supporter of women's football, so it's never been out of the realm to expect this from Optus Sport. But to have an all-female panel covering an all-female International domestic competition and the best competition in the world. How amazing and what a game we witnessed as well. What a way to kick it off.
1: I, I think the uh, halftime analysis. I mean, Caitlin Ford had come off injured. Arsenal were behind. Uh, it seemed as though Manchester City had been squandering chances. It, it was one of the. It was almost the perfect game to kick off sort of this uh, amplified coverage, wasn't it, Amy? Because you had so many talking points coming out of the game, not least the spectacular match-winning goal for Katie McCabe. <laughs>
3: Absolutely, and, and I think the cool thing about this season in the WSL is the tight. It's so tight at the top. Still, just three points separating the top four. Um, you've got newcomers, well, relative newcomers to the league. Manchester United. That's right. We're doing it right on the women's side of the table as well. We'll look at that a little later on. But um, Manchester United doing well. You've got big names up there. We've got so many Aussies. We we could have featured up to six Aussies in that match. In fact, if it had not been for injuries. Um, On Sunday night, Man City did it again, four minutes it took them to score a goal, which was almost deja vu of last time around. Heather Garriok was really critical of their finishing in that first half. And then this amazing fight back came. Um, and we saw, you know, the two goals come in and Katie McCabe's finish. And it was um, it was wonderful to watch. It's awesome. The, the bit that wasn't wonderful, of course, was Caitlin Ford's injury. And I'm sure we're going to touch on that in a moment. But Bunny Shaw getting another goal, uh, keeping this really tight. And it just keeps it interesting. And after the international break, of course, it's not a one-off, Tao. We'll be back.
1: And that is something to look forward to. P- uh, I've got to say... I was quite surprised when Manchester City beat Chelsea a couple of weeks ago. I thought Chelsea might have taken the lead and sort of that might have been the last change at the top. Now it's anyone's. How exciting has it been from your point of view? And can you give us some insights and a bit of a a read into this form line, which continues to throw up twists and turns?
2: I think this has been the best women's Super League season to date in terms of the title race, a four-way title race it is and there is a date coming up in May where all four teams are playing each other um which will be the one to watch I think I think I can't remember what date it is but it will sometime in the middle of May and um that I think will be the date which will decide the title um between the four because it's so close and I'm you know Manchester United women I'm happy for them that they've been able to actually take that step into being title challengers because the trouble for them for the past couple of years was they were constantly fourth, They were constantly sitting in that fourth place position, whereas now they're sort of leading leading the way and they're pushing Arsenal and Chelsea and Manchester City to give these great performances. That that result that you talked about, Chelsea and Manchester City, I did that game and it was it was a brilliant game to cover because only a couple of days before that, I did the Chelsea match um, against Lyon where they beat Lyon 1-0 in France, which was a huge result for them. Um, for their first leg and obviously you know we know what happened in the second leg which was even more incredible for them but I think that 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 focus on having a massive game in Europe to a huge game in the WSL to an even bigger game in Europe only a couple of days later kind of took it out of Chelsea a little bit they looked tired and I think ultimately that is where they will drop down and they had the opportunity you, you never want to say it, but that was probably a game that they could afford to lose. They can't afford to lose any other games now, Chelsea, if they want to retain the WSL title. Because you've got an Arsenal team, like you, we saw against Manchester City, that will, that will fight back. They've got that fight within them. They're still in the Champions League as well. And although they have got these injury worries to worry about now, I think the fact that everyone is sort of pushing each other on, it's going to be such an exciting end to the season.
1: I won't let the chance for a plug slide. That date you refer to, perfect for Australia as well. Prime time Sunday the twenty first of May nine pm Manchester United play Manchester City and then straight after at eleven pm Chelsea against Arsenal so if there if ever there was a night to uh, maybe call in sick for school the next morning and and let the young football <laughs> fans stay up late Amy uh, I reckon that's the one what do you reckon
3: um, I reckon because my daughter can't hear me at the moment that is the perfect idea uh, we will probably watch it. I'll let her watch it on replay or watch the mini-match the next morning, Tao. But I will certainly be sitting through them, that is for sure.
1: This title race, as we know, it's it's very, very difficult to anticipate from here. But I wanted to ask you about a different race, and that is the golden boot. Bunny Shaw scoring her 16th of the season, the Jamaican striker, who we are going to be seeing in Australia at the World Cup. Sam Kerr has eight. Pinn, does the goal tally reflect uh, reality? Why is there such a gap? Uh, in scoring, and why has Sam Kerr's production in the WSL been so far down this season?
2: I think it's. It depends on the way that teams play. I think Manchester City have been able to get those um, balls into Bunny Shaw, where she's been able to finish. She's she has been likened to an Erling Haaland. You know they've got they've got a Bunny Shaw and an Erling Haaland at Manchester City, and they're playing a similar way towards for each other. You know the the players that are in that Manchester City squad know that if they get the balls into the area, Bunny Shaw is going to be there to try and finish it off. She's a brilliant finisher, and you know her goals tally shows that. The difference with Sam Kerr is obviously she's she's a similar type of player, but with Chelsea there's so many players on that pitch that can score goals and they can score goals at important times and there's a little bit more fluidity i think in the Chelsea squad in terms of who is going to be the finisher you know they can score from all over the pitch they've got They've got players that can score from distance, they can score from range, they can score close goals, they can score messy goals and I think that's what is important for Chelsea is the fact that they have that opportunity all across the pitch. Of course it can be a little bit frustrating I'm sure for Sam Kerr that she's not getting as many goals as as she probably was used to but I think that's all just down to the way that Chelsea are playing and, and the involvement of the other players too.
3: And I tend to agree with you and players like Guru Wright are also having outstanding seasons over at Chelsea. But, uh, you know, we saw a little hint of this goal scoring capability from Bunny Shaw last year, obviously playing behind Ellen White, though. And now she's really stepped up, taking that number nine jersey and she's she's making it her own summer, even tipping her for the Ballon d'Or. I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but um, I think she'll pick up the golden boot easily. Please don't take anything away from Sam either because she's the first non-European player to score 50 WSR goals and racked up uh, that lovely milestone to add to the long list of achievements um, that she's been able to get while she's been playing over there in the WSL, and will of course P and be playing in the Champions League as well as is Arsenal. Um, so Chelsea's playing Barcelona, Arsenal taking on Wolfsburg in the semi-finals. Do you think having two of the WSL teams in the Champions League semi-finals, P and, means that the WSL is now Europe's top league, not France anymore? I think
2: by a long mile the WSL is a is the top league. Be just because of the the level of competition there is now. I think the the excitement that it brings, you know, you have got great teams in France. Obviously we see that with Lyon and PSG. There's great teams in Germany as well, which we can see obviously with the likes of Wolfsburg and Bayern Munich. But I think the fact that we have a four way title race, there are players coming from all over Europe, all over the world, that are coming to play in the WSL. I think that just shows the the level of, of how great the league is. Um, but also, what makes the the Champions League so exciting is is the fact that there are now two WSL teams. I think that is is where it's needed to go from. It, you know, Chelsea were able to get to the final, but then they were you know absolutely battered by Barcelona in the final. It's the same with Arsenal; haven't won it since two thousand and seven. So it was such a long time since since a WSL team, two WSL teams have been able to like really make a claim for we, they could win this. You know, they could absolutely have a, have a chance of winning, it. especially Chelsea. The fact that they knocked out the eight time record holders, Leon, that was an incredible story. I mean, what a great thing for someone like me, a commentator, to be able to cover a game like that where you just never would expect it. Um yeah, I think I think it's it's been a really good sort of advertisement for the WSL and hopefully this will give that momentum that is so desperately needed to continue for the audiences across Europe, across the world to to get interested in the WSL.
1: Very interesting you say that, because about six or seven weeks ago we had Alex Ibaceta from Dazone on the Gegen Pod, and she was adamant that the Spanish league <laughs> was better than the WSL. Um but one of the factors in that of course is the unstoppable force that is barcelona how do you see what they have done their crowds the winning streak the way they've dominated in spain i know they lost the champions league final last season but the, but the fact they were there and have now have alexia Pateas, who seems to have the the cut through marketing as sort of a, a someone who can win all these individual awards even while being out injured but the phenomenon that is barcelona what effect has that had on women's football broadly and are you experiencing the cut through of what they can do in England as well?
2: I think what a big part of Barcelona and sort of women's football now that it's growing is the fact that there are superstars being made in women's football. Alexia Putellas is a superstar. She is a footballing superstar, but she is now a footballing celebrity. You know, she's, she is, she is up there with, with the greats of football now. Um, and it's the same what's happening in England after after England won the Euros. You know, there are becoming footballing superstars. You know, you see the likes of Leah Williamson, who's on the cover of magazines. Um, you're seeing things that you never used to see before. You know, women's footballers being on the forefront of things that aren't just about women's football. It's it's the, it's the wider interest from the public now, and I think that's what makes it so special. That Barcelona game, when they reached over 91,000, I mean, I get goosebumps now every time I talk about it. I remember covering it, and at the time, I was doing the commentary, so you have to just be be focused. But And I wasn't there. I was doing it off-tube, which was such a shame, because if I was there, I would never forget that moment. But it was when they'd announced the 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 crowd the record crowd it was just an absolute pinch me moment i mean to have that many you know more than the men were getting at that point you know it was an incredible thing and i think it just shows it was a massive statement for the rest of the world to say that this is women's football you know people are interested people want to go to these football games you know if you give them the opportunity if you put it if you give them the space and the ch- the chances to do it they will go and watch it and you know it was historic and I'm I'm so glad that it happened and I just hope
3: it happens more and more times uh, throughout the year you're almost making me cry, Pian. The passion is amazing, but uh, but you know, I just I hear how I feel through your voice is what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say. It's um, you know to see crowd figures like this and to know that these players are stepping up and and becoming what previous generations of players, the game and the people are becoming what previous generations of footballers always dreamed of and it's um, it's such a moment of pride and it actually makes me emotional to hear you talk about it.
1: Well, I, I wanted to ask about the England team then, Pen, Is it Alessio Russo? Is that the player that is elevating to Pateus like status? Is it Ella Toon? Sadly, Beth Mead is, is going to miss the World Cup with her torn ACL. If you had to earmark one player that can sort of step into that stratosphere uh, as far as international footballing celebrity who is it that is going to be the name that is England's pin-up the same way that Pateas is for Spain
2: yeah I think I think Alessia Russo is definitely up there because of just you know she has got incredible skills she's she's a she's a brilliant forward you know she can play in, in different positions but she's so useful for England and I think she'll definitely step up during the World Cup. It's I think she's becoming she's coming into her prime. I think it's a great the World Cup has come at a great time for her, especially off the back of the Euros. It's the same with Alatoon. Um, you know, they're a great duo together. It's nice to see sort of their relationship off the pitch as well as on the pitch as well. So um I think they'll definitely be sort of standout players. I think um but then you've got the the, the sort of the older players as well, like Kira Walsh, who I think is one of the best midfielders that I've seen. Um, and she's she's not spoken about enough, I think. Kara Walsh. she's she's such a brilliant, brilliant footballer. Um, but obviously, you know, sometimes midfielders kind of go by the wayside a little bit because they're not always getting the goals, but they're creating them. They're such a they're such a heart of the, of that football team. And I think Kara Walsh is a is a real special player. The same as, as Lucy Bronze, who now obviously we're seeing both of them in, in a Barcelona team and they're they're doing brilliantly. Um there are a lot of stars I think in that England squad, especially Leah Williamson as the captain. She thinks she's a great leader. Um I think that's what's nice about that England team is there are a lot of players that are sort of stepping up and they are um, you know making names for themselves. I mean the not that they will care much about this but their follower accounts um, from the euros went up an incredible amount you know the, the, the amount of followers that they've gained from winning the euros and that momentum and I think that's important is, is you know our, the younger generation are following everything on social media now and I think to have to have them sort of be there, you know, players to look up to. They're becoming their own superstars in their own right. And um, I think there's, you know, the England squad have done that well, where they've, they've kept that momentum going with the, that fan base that they've got now.
1: Before we talk about the Matildas and, and the issues facing them, I wanted to ask, I have one hard question here, uh, about the England team. What canary in the coal mine is indicative of Serena Viegman calling for 26-player squads? When I heard that, when I thought, why is 23 not enough? It just set off a little alarm bell for me. And I know that other nations uh, have got bigger problems and we'll get to those. But why would Serena Vigman want 26? Is 23 not enough, (laughs) Pen?
2: Well, she said she wanted 26 because of player welfare. So she thinks that there needs to be more players available to her to be able to rotate, which is interesting because she didn't rotate at all with the Euros, she kept the same squad pretty much the whole time. So um, she definitely knows who her favourite players are and, and the team that she wants to put out. Um, I can understand, obviously, if you have more players at your disposal, your disposal, it's, uh, it's, you know, a little bit less pressure. But at the same time, I think, you know, it's only three extra players, isn't it, to what you're going to get. So... Um, I think probably for her, she's just know- she just knows that there's so many great players in in England that she can choose from. It's probably just going to make a decision even harder that she has to do 23 instead of 26. That's probably more what it is.
1: Well, what are your perceptions of Australia going into this international break? We mentioned Caitlin Ford, who's since been ruled out through injury. Alana Kennedy won't play. Steph Catley uh, was optimistic about a, a return, but won't be back in time for this international window. So uh, as far as what England are looking to get out of this game, but also your perceptions of where the Matildas are at, uh, just cast a form line over both teams for us, please.
2: I think it will be it will be a good sort of indication to see, um, especially where the Matildas are at at the moment. Um, you know they have got great players, and I think what has been important is seeing those um, Australian players in the WSL. Um, has you know has sort of made a, a lot more people in the UK more aware of, of what the Matildas can do. And there's some really hugely experienced players in that in that Australian squad. So um, yeah, I, I do hope that they can they can go far at the World Cup. I think this friendly will be an interesting one to see. Um, Sort of where they're at and how they can cope with with bigger players missing, and whether the other players that will go into their positions will step up and be able to help out the squad. Um, but again, I think it's it's similar because because they have those sort of real experience within their squad um, and the fact that it's a home tournament. I do hope that Australia can use that um, use that to sort of push them through and, and try and get further. I do think though that England sorry, might just have a little bit too much within them. Um, And they're probably, yeah, I think they're a little bit um, ahead of Australia at the time. But, you know, you never know. Football is football, isn't it? And um, hopefully it'll be a good game.
1: Well, 2019, a a long time ago now, was a one-all draw. Uh, Is the Olympics treated as a mulligan because it was Great Britain, because it was pre-Viegman? And it's almost like a BCAD situation where ever since Serena Viegman's come into the England team that you kind of have to draw a line, under all the previous regimes and say this is now a totally new era for the England women's team.
2: I think it definitely is a new era. Um I think I think the I mean the the, the team GB was a great squad because they were able to pick up pick out players that you know hugely experienced players from Scotland and Wales and so forth and and, and Ireland and it, it was it was a, a good experience for them but I think the the way that Serena Weekman has come into to that England squad and and has just completely transformed them mentally as well, not just on the pitch. I think the, the whole com- camaraderie within the squad is brilliant. I think every player knows where they stand. Um, I think every player fights for their place in that team. I think that's what's important. And now that they've tasted success under Serena, obviously Serena's been to, to a World Cup final with the Netherlands before where they lost to USA back in two thousand nineteen. So she she still has that heartbreak of, of getting all the way to the end. So I think she she knows what to do with her players. She knows psychologically how to get them in that winning mentality. I think that is is probably what's changed for, for
3: England. And
2: yeah, I think it definitely is a new era.
1: Amy, your thoughts uh, on the upcoming international window for the Matildas?
3: Well, it's an important window, isn't it? It's a limited time and limited preparation now until we do hit the big stage here in Australia. And I think we're really lucky to play both of these uh, countries in this window. Of course, Scotland first, which will be nice. And then the big one against England. Uh, Had we had our full complement of players, I was confident, Pian, that we were going to match it. Don't you worry. Um, (laughs) I'm a little less confident at the moment, but what this does do is actually give some of those players that the world always wants to see and commentators like yourself are always calling on to start games and to see how they can move. And ultimately in a tournament, Tao, we we could end up in this situation where we are missing two or three of our big players when we do come up um, into... You know, the later parts of the competition against tougher sides. So I think this is a perfect taster of where we're at, how to manipulate the squad. Um, a little bit differently it'll be great I think you'll see Claire I think you'll see Claire Hunt maintain her position uh, in the centre back and she did such an outstanding job in her debut games that um, it's wonderful to see her getting more experience under her belt but it also you know as you said allows a chance for some of those other players that don't normally start to step up and really get the job done and play against the top talent in the world so I'm still super excited for this game.
1: Let's talk about some of those other tough teams at the World Cup. Uh, Penn, you've covered a lot of Champions League, so you've seen Lyon, you've seen PSG, and you've seen the top French players. Hervé Renard, is this a winning move by France? Uh, for starters, all the players that were out under Corinne Diak uh, are, are going to be back in the fold. But is this the game-changer France, need? It's one thing to win two African Cup of Nations with two different countries. It's it's another thing to coach Saudi Arabia through a translator. Hervé Renard, very much one of those globetrotting French managers that have been to Africa and the Middle East. And, and women's football is one of the areas that none of them have ever trodden. You know, the Paul Le Guen's and the Philip truciers of the world never tried women's football, and Hervé Renard is. Do you think it's going to work?
2: Yeah, I think... I think it's a brilliant appointment, actually. Um, I was I was surprised when I saw it, but I thought, great. you know, I, This is what also, you know, I, I'm so happy that it's happened because I think he, he will be a great manager. I'm happy for France that they've been able to put aside everything that's happened with, with Diacre and the fact that that is now in the past and the players that they are coming back, you know, they need to have a player like Wendy Renard back in that team because she is just outstanding. Um, and you couldn't imagine a World Cup without her. So um, I think the fact that they can sort of make this a clean slate, they can start sort of afresh and he can put his, his stamp on this France team, I think will be will be huge. And I think I'm so excited to see what he does do with that French um, national team because the players that they have at his disposal is incredible. And uh, he could do so much with that France team. Um it all depends on whether the players buy into it and we'll have to wait and see whether they do. But I think, you know, considering, as you mentioned, his his long CV of, of international football that he's had in a men's game um, can absolutely be
3: translated into the women's game. I think it'll be interesting to see how he fits in, Tane. I do want to mention that his average coaching term is only about 1.3 years. So whether it turns out to be a longer appointment than that for him or not, who knows.
1: Um, Amy, I think France will be happy if it's seven competitive games. He can have a few friendlies. If he gets them to that final, it may as well only be seven.
3: I'm not sure it'll get them to the final. It'll be interesting to see how that adjustment goes. I think at first it'll be wonderful. You always feel refreshed, like it's a fresh slate, like everyone has an equal opportunity. When a new coach comes in, there's uh, a different enthusiasm about your, you know, your first few national camps under a new coach. So um, you know it'll depend how he sets the tone, I Think there seems to be a lot of respect there from the vision that I've seen of players entering camp. And obviously, the best thing about this is the the group of players that didn't want to play coming back and knowing that we will have the best talent in the world um, coming to Australia in July.
1: Well, let's just cast our eye forward to the World Cup, Pen. I know it's a long a long way away and we're, we've still got a lot to work out as far as... Are Spain bringing their strongest available team? Will Canada be happy and, and have all their issues with the Federation resolved? Who might get injured or who might get rehabbed between now and the World Cup? But if I had to put you on the spot today for your World Cup winner and your golden ball, who I'm, I'm not going to hold you to these, I'm not going to lock them in. But who's the clubhouse leader for you right now?
2: I think genuinely, not just because I'm here, I think England have got a very good chance um, this this summer to to win the world cup i think that yeah i they, they really will miss beth mead you know she she did brilliantly well at the euros but they have players that are able to step up i think england will be a, will be really a team to watch but i also think germany will be tough to beat especially because they lost out to that euros and um, they will be desperate to try and get the revenge for that and then you've obviously got lots of of great teams the um the finalissimo is coming up here in the UK on Thursday at Wembley, so Brazil against England, which will be great to see, to see how that Brazil team is shaping up ahead of the ahead of the World Cup as well. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. In terms of Golden Ball, I actually think it will be Alex Popp from Germany. I think she um this is probably her last World Cup, so it's her last time to shine, maybe, and I think she um I think she will be the provider of the goals at the World Cup for me.
1: And if you had to earmark a finishing position for the Matildas, because, of course, they could have England in the round of 16, they could have France or Germany in a quarterfinal, they could have any one of those three waiting for them in a semi, if they are fortunate enough or good enough to get to the semi final, and then, surprise, it's Germany waiting for you. When, Tay, when? As of today, how far do you think the Matildas can go?
2: Oh God, that is a difficult question. I think they could get to get get to the knockouts. I think they could get through to the quarterfinals um especially with the if they've got the crowd behind them, you know that makes such a difference when it's a home tournament um the momentums with them, the fan base um they've got their families close to them. I think that makes such a difference. Quarterfinals maybe even semifinals um if they dig deep and find something. Depends it all depends who they face I think. It depends if they've got the look of the draw and and who you know what surprises we get along the way. Um but I definitely think they could they could have a good little run.
1: That's looking ahead to the World Cup. Right now, to finish on the Gagan Pod, Pen, it'd be remiss of us not to have a little bit of a chat about you because we've got you here. We hear your voice on Optus Sport. Um you are commentating matches. It is really groundbreaking. Yourself and Jackie Oatley have been the female voices that we're hearing coming through our screens. Highlights, packages, mini matches, live games. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got there because I almost think it's it's phenomenal that you've got there at your age. Never mind the fact that you have also the fact you're breaking ground as a woman doing so as well.
2: Yeah, do you know what? It was it has gone very quickly. I have to say it's it's been it's been a, a really quick journey, but a, a really good one. I have to be totally honest. I never ever thought I would be a commentator. That was never sort of in my my mind about what I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to do something in football because I'd obviously grown up in, in sport and in football and I, you know, I was going in the direction of being presenter reporter. So that's how I started. Um, I was working at local radio at the BBC. So I was just doing assistant stuff. I was working behind the scenes. I was editing and doing that kind of thing. And then I got the opportunity to go to some games and do some, some reporting there. And then it sort of grew from there, and I was working as a reporter for, for Premier League Productions, um, and just asking the questions after the game and that kind of thing. And then someone had mentioned to me, "Oh, we we, we like we like your voice when you do when you do your post match interviews. Have you ever thought about doing commentary?" And at this point, I was doing some commentaries um, for Manchester United TV for, for their women's team. Um, but I never really had any lessons. I'd never been taught how to commentate. I just was doing it just for you know it was fun for me and I enjoyed doing it. And then they said, well, why don't you come in and and do a game off tube? No one will hear it apart from you know some of the the um, the managers at PLP. And then they yeah they let me do one of these games. And then um, I did one off tube game, one game at Arsenal. And from then they gave me a game I think pretty much every week. And then um, got picked up by to do their women's champions league um the last season got picked up by sky sports um to do their premier league games every weekend and obviously that that goes across the world feed as well and also with the bbc now and they've just you know they just took me to the world cup which was incredible so i think i did my first ever live premier league game when i was 24 last last december and um yeah, World Cup when I was 25 and just turned 26, so it's been a pretty, it's been a pretty crazy um, sort of year and a half, I suppose.
1: It is phenomenal, and I've got to say it has been groundbreaking in the sense that here in Australia we have our A League Women's. This last uh, summer, three new women's commentators, I think between the three of them, 10 games each over the course of the season. And then an ex-player, Grace Gill, a former Matilda, also took the microphone and went from being an analyst and a, a studio pundit to doing the lead play-by-play. And I guess if you were giving advice to any aspiring women that are getting into the industry, you know, or ones that are in the industry, like, say, a Pakua Frimpong and Taryn Heddo that were commentating the A-League women's this summer just finished what would you say to them about your own journey and about the experience and about also overcoming some of the challenges and the hurdles along the way?
2: I think for me, my biggest challenge was was trying not to listen to the outside and, and just focusing on me and tr- and believing in my own ability, which I still really struggle with. I still, you know, there's times where I listen back and I'm like, oh, why does anyone want to listen to that? And you really struggle with your own self-belief because commentary ultimately is so vulnerable because it's your voice for 90 minutes straight or more. You know, it's, it's everything you say, every word seems like the biggest thing you're going to say because you're listening to just your voice. Um, whereas I think that the main sort of bit of advice is, is you're there for a reason. People like the tone of your voice. People like the way that you sound. And, um, and at the end of the day, it's a football game. Enjoy it. You know, you, you should appreciate the fact that you're there and, and I'd, there was a moment actually at the world cup because I do, I get, I get, I put myself under a lot of pressure and I do struggle with that a lot. And, you know, the anxiety of work and things like that. And I, you know, it's a lot of pressure for, for one person to be under knowing how many people are going to be listening to your voice. But there was a moment when I was in the world cup where I knew there was going to be millions of people listening to this commentary. And I just, said to myself, I was like, I will regret every minute if I if I don't enjoy this. If I just sit there and worry too much about what I'm gonna do and what I'm gonna say or what's going to happen, I will regret it for the rest of my life. So I got to the World Cup and I thought, I'm just gonna enjoy this. I'm here at this incredible, you know, tournament and I'm watching these teams, you know, some of the best teams in the world, I'm just gonna have fun with this. And I did. And I think ultimately that is what football is. It's entertaining, it's entertainment for the viewers. And that's what's the most important thing so yeah i think that my main thing as hard as it is sometimes when it's really really hard like a lot of pressure is just enjoy it you know um that you know you're there for a reason and and you know you should believe in yourself
3: I think it's absolutely wonderful advice, Payne, so great. And I think the other question I had for you, and I know you've had some great male mentors around you in the commentary space, um, I, I did pick that up listening to an interview with you, but your dad must have also had a pretty big influence on your love of football and your love for sport. Do you guys talk about football a lot? We saw a wonderful moment of you interviewing him uh, over in Qatar, which was so cool, both of you over there at the same time. But talk to me about that relationship and the football Part of it,
2: yeah. Do you know what? If my dad was here, he'd probably be saying, "You know, when Peen was a kid, she—I she, never thought she'd get into football because I was—I was kind of so against it until I was until probably about eleven or twelve, um because none of my friends were into football. T- truly, like I just—I was playing hockey at the time. I was—I played hockey. I played netball. That they were my sports. So that's what I enjoyed doing. And then it was actually my mum, um out of everyone in the family, that said. I'm going to take you to a Manchester United game, and because I think I used to have I used to have to go and watch. There Bayern. it is,
3: everybody! The love <laughs> yeah. of Manchester United. Yeah. See what it
2: does to people. <laughs> I know you just can't go back, can you? But it was because I'd have to go to my younger brother's games, and Mum would, for, you know, I'd have to do my homework whilst watching Mela train, and it was getting that kind of. It was frustrating for me. Whereas then Mum said, "Right, well let's go to Old Trafford." And um, I think it must have been when I was about twelve years old, and I walked over to Old Trafford, and I just th- I caught the football bug, and I loved it. And then and then I started talking to my friends about it, and I was and, you know they were interested in football, and and. You know, you'd have all these great conversations about Manchester City and Manchester United and Liverpool and all these things when you're younger and you, you start having that little bit of banter with your friends. And yeah, I just sort of caught the bug from there on. And then I am I, truly very lucky that I have my whole family that are into football. You know, my dad, obviously a football coach. My older brother, Jopper is a football analyst and then Mella plays football. So... From all sort of sides, I've got information. So if I'm going to interview a football player, I'll speak to my younger brother about it and be like, you know, how how do you would you want this to be approached as a football player? What what thoughts are going on in your mind at this point? And it's the same with my dad. If there's a, a team and I want some tips on them, and you know how you know as a manager, how do you think they're going to cope with this situation? They're great people to talk to. And my brother, my older brother, Yoffra, this incredible mind. He's he's so good at analysis and and formations and tactics and he's brilliant. So yeah, I've been truly very blessed with the surroundings that I've got. There's just uh, not really a moment where we never talk about football. So it's quite, you know, if you're not into football, it's probably one of these really annoying families that never shut up about it.
1: (laughs) When it comes to women in the commentary box, there have been massive obstacles and certainly a lot of, you know, from garden variety misogyny to just rank awful stuff. What's your filter How do you close out the outside world? You you spoke about the pressure of being in front of an audience of millions. But how is it that, that you are able to either put up the barriers or to ignore the noise? And then is it a case of looking to mentors? Is it strength from within? How do you make sure that, you know, for all the good you are doing, you do not let that one imbecile or the one comment on social media wreck your day or wreck your experience in the game?
2: it is really hard i it took me a while because obviously when i first started no one really knew who i was um and i wasn't getting comments so so one comment would really really upset me one nasty comment and i remember someone had sent me screenshots of like multiple nasty things that people were saying to me and just sent them to me all at once and um and that was you know that i was like oh god you know why do people do that why why would people want to upset someone and um you know i did speak to people about it i i had to speak to a therapist about it just because it was it was a very um quick thing to happen to someone overnight kind of thing where you where you you know i'm just trying to do my job i'm trying you know i've only just started you know everyone has to to learn and everyone has to grow um but ultimately now i just don't look whether it's good or bad that is the only way i deal with it you know um if i tweet I only I have a filter where you know only people that I follow can reply to it um, purely just to stop the negativity from being coming to me. You know people are more than welcome to voice their opinion themselves, but um, you know if it's going to be directed to me, I just don't want to see it. Um, so either way, I just don't look. So if I know that there's going to be a highlights video that's going to go over onto YouTube, I won't look at any of the comments, even if there's some really nice comments. There's no point because once you start going down that rabbit hole of oh look this person likes my commentary, this person likes my commentary, oh stop right there there's one person that doesn't like it and that's the comment that will stick with you and it's not helpful you know why would you need to look at that so I have the people that I trust and the people that I know that need to give me feedback and I want them to give me feedback will do that you know the people that are hiring me um but for the rest of the time it's it's you know you just have to block out the noise you have to just get on with it and at the t- at the same time, you know, it's just, it is just a football game and I am just a voice, you know, I'm a human person and I am just a voice and you can still watch what's happening on the TV screen, whether you like it or not, people are just going to have to get used to it. And I'm just like, I can't convince you to enjoy it. People will just have to get used to it. And that's the end of it.
1: What is on the bucket list for, for you then, given that, as you said, it's been a bit of a whirlwind 18 months or two years. So with a lot of time ahead, what is actually uh one thing you would like to tick off?
2: Um I would love to just do more um you know tournaments and and finals and you know that game that I did Leon Chelsea only a couple of days ago is is why I love doing football because it's the you know you you can never guess what's going to happen and that's you know that kind of the, you know what it means for football teams um, to be in that stage of competitions is so great, and I, I love covering that kind of thing. So yeah, so I'm very lucky that I'm doing the Women's Champions League final, um, and you know I'd love to go and do a, a Men's Champions League final at some point. Um, but also the World Cup, you know the Women's World Cup. I've not actually commentated on a Women's World Cup before, so I'm, I'm super excited for that. Um, the Men's obviously this this last winter for us um so that was great but yeah i think sort of just going in the way that i'm going and and uh yeah hopefully just getting some um, some more real crucial games under my belt
1: pin it's been great to have you on the Gegen pod thanks for joining us and uh giving us both your analysis of the football but also a bit of an insight into you and i think it's it's going to just uh make it that little bit more special for our optus sport audience when they next hear you on a game to get to know you a little bit better
3: yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, guys. Really great to see you. Payne. it's been so wonderful to have you with us. You're an absolute inspiration, and um, what a great podcast, hey?
1: Yes, a big thanks to Amy Duggan, and wow, uh, Pete Muhlenstein is a capital S star. What a phenomenal guest, and certainly a set of bar for Schwartzy and Bridgie and Thomas to live up to when we get them back on the Geggin pod. The Premier League continues with two games at 5am Australian Eastern Time on Thursday, depending when you're listening to this podcast. West Ham hosting Newcastle United and Manchester United against Brentford. Weekend action now kicks off at 9.30pm on Saturday night. Don't forget that goal rush is now midnight on Sunday and you can finish the weekend with Liverpool against Arsenal from 1.30am on Monday, all times Australian Eastern Standard Time. La Liga continues on Saturday at 5am when Sevilla plays Celta Vigo and you can see Real Madrid's match against Villarreal at 5am on Sunday plus Barcelona's match against Girona is 5am on Tuesday, don't miss it, all times Australian Eastern Standard Time. The WSL breaks for the international window but returns on Thursday April the 20th at 4am Australian Eastern Standard Time with a vital game in the battle against the drop as Brighton play Everton and the J-League and K-League continue on Optus Sport, make sure to jump on the Optus Sport website or app for broadcast details. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there. I've been your host, Teo Pellizzeri. Thanks for your company on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was The Gegenpod.